So now we're going to talk about or around the ability of our country, New Zealand, to reform. What sort of reform? How big is the job? How long have we got? To talk about this, the Executive Director of the New Zealand Initiative, Dr. Oliver Hartwich, a German economist with a sense of humour. Yeah, well, um, as you would expect from us, I mean, it's genetic. Yeah. Good to talk to you. Yeah, good to have you on the program too. I've heard you talk uh, quite a few times, and I've always been impressed with the clarity of what you um, have to say. And I think the most recent um, uh, comments I heard you make were around the education system. And I got to say, I was listening to that in my car in a car park at the hospital, um, and it, it kind of depressed me a little. <laughs> Not much humor in that. <laughs> well, so, it is depressing. Education is particularly depressing. And um, I've been here for almost 11 years now. And over that time, we at the New Zealand Initiative have produced probably about a third of our reports on education. And that shows you just how important that topic is to us and how much there is wrong with the system. And after all of these years, I still have a feeling that we haven't actually achieved much reform. Okay, at least the public understands now we've got a problem. At mm. least there are some politicians listening to us, and maybe they might even implement some of our policy proposals in the future. But gee, for 11 years, this country has been going downwards further. And actually, this process started before we started the initiative. So we're talking about maybe 20 or 30 years of education decline. So yes, I am frustrated about education. And I've got a 10-year-old son going to school in New Zealand. And I want him to get a decent education. You know, maybe I was a little more lucky because uh, mine went through in the 90s. And I, I don't know um, if you could say that the rot set in. I don't know w w when. It was that... definitely better then. Yeah. And you can see this. We have got data for that. So the OECD started measuring our education performance in the year 2000. And back then, we were still ahead of the pack. We were better than the OECD average. But over the last 22 years, we have really lost that position. And just to give you one figure... Um, if you just look at the OECD's data for our maths performance, today's 15-year-olds are only as good as 13-and-a-half-year-olds would have been in the year 2000. We lost the equivalent of one-and-a-half years of maths teaching over the two decades. Well, um, we can get down into the weeds, but um, big picture, first of all. I mean, you know, the 10,000-foot or metre view looking down on New Zealand. How have you got a word? If you got a sentence, uh, describe where we are at in your mind right now. Oh, maybe I describe what impression I had of New Zealand before I came here. Yeah, sure. Because as a German economist, New Zealand was always held up as the one country that can reform. Because I mean, New Zealand once did it, nineteen eighty-four, and we as German economists looked at New Zealand as one of these poster charts for reform of things that are possible when a country really wants to turn around, or probably in the case of New Zealand 84, needs to turn around. And so when I studied economics in Germany in the 90s, that was one of the models we looked at. So when I came here, I thought, well, it's a relatively small country compared to Germany, for example, or even to Britain or Australia, where I used to work before. So I thought, actually, this is not one of those super tankers where it's difficult to turn things around. When things go wrong, it's 5 million people, it's proven reformability, you can probably do things. But the longer I'm here, the more frustrated I get because I figured out it's not quite like that. The 84 reforms purpose were the exception rather than the rule. It was born out of necessity, but actually getting real change implemented in New Zealand is bloody hard. And why do you think that is? Because I think New Zealanders are not necessarily honest with themselves. Oh. Take, take education, for example. How many times have I heard that we have a world-class education system? Or people saying, well, just like you earlier, but we used to have a world-class education system. So yeah. the real extent of our problems doesn't actually quite sink in. We still try to explain to ourselves, well, in the end, everything is fine. In the end, everything will be right. She'll be right. We've got this number eight wire mentality. We'll make it work somehow. And so I think that idea perhaps slows us down. We don't quite see the realities of some of our policy failures. And we, I mean, admittedly, we can have a decent life in New Zealand. You can have a very decent life. You can enjoy life. You can still go to the beach and the weather is more or less fine. Um, and, mm. and you have decent coffee and decent wine and the people are friendly. And there are many things to love about New Zealand. 
But we always tend to resort to this kind of stuff. And then we ignore the problems all around us, even when they're totally visible. Is it like too hard to to think about? Is life too easy? I mean, um, surely, and as I remember it growing up, you know, it, it was quite a conservative country, but there was always a sort of like a get up and go and try things. Yes, and, and that's still there. And that's that's good. And still, perhaps because of our ability to make do even in adverse circumstances, we're probably not quite getting to the root of some of our problems. Well, and on top of that, of course, we have some institutional structures that make reform increasingly difficult. So I'm talking about the public service. Um, I, I'm increasingly concerned about our ability in the public service to really implement reforms, particularly when these reforms go against the grain of what the public service has been doing for the last 30 years. Think of education again. Um, and I think the other thing missing really from all of our reform debates is um, a proper media debate. In other countries, at least when there are problems, you can find them prominently featured in the mainstream media. In the New Zealand media, I think um, coverage is relatively limited. There are not enough viewpoints represented and the discussions are actually quite shallow. So even on really important topics like um, what's happening currently in resource management and planning, th these reforms are now going through parliament and I mean, reforms and in inverted commas, not that they're making anything better, but the public doesn't even notice. So I think New Zealand actually needs to have much more of a debate, um, a broader, a wider debate, and it needs to be honest with itself, really. We need to figure out where this country has gone systematically wrong in the last few decades, and then we have to turn things around. You've mentioned be honest with itself a couple of times already. Are we in some... And I want to get into a few of the weeds of, of what needs to be done in, in the various sort of sectors and categories, et cetera. But are we in some sort of denial? Um, look, New Zealanders are, I think, impeccably polite. Um, we don't often say what we really mean. I mean, there seems to be some kind of national disease. And I remember quite vividly, actually, when I arrived in this beautiful country almost 11 years ago, I gave the kinds of speeches that I would have given in Sydney or London or Germany, where I worked before, and I just said what I think. And then people came to me afterwards and said, that was so refreshing to hear someone speak his mind. And for the first couple of months in the country, I thought it was a compliment. And it was only afterwards that I realized these people are trying to tell you something. Just shut up. We don't do that here. So what I've noticed is actually that we've got a culture where, you know, you always meet twice or three times or four times, and you always know somebody else's brother or neighbor, or they went to school together. And it is an incredibly small country with a famous two degrees of separation. And I think that leads to us moderating ourselves. We take ourselves back because we can't afford to fall out with anyone. In Australia, where I worked before, and certainly in Britain, it is different. I mean, the countries are vast, case of Australia, so you never meet again, so you can just as well tell each other what you really think. In New Zealand, of course, you've got to meet again, so you're a bit more polite, and you take your criticism back. And then, of course, you've got this phenomenon where the country is so small and some areas are so specialized that we would never actually voice dissent too much in public anyway. Think of central banking. It's a very small central banking community in New Zealand. So all the people who really understand what's going on in the system are in some way still linked to the RBNZ, and very few people are willing to speak out publicly even though in private, um, some of them have very strong opinions. It's kind of a dangerous way to play, isn't it? Because it, everything sort of ends up cancelling itself out. And, you know, where, where's, the, where's the courage? Is this, you're talking about, you know, the, the very small sort of concentrated sectors in a small country. Well, are people worried about not getting a job somewhere or... I mean, there's there's wor worrying about criticism is one thing, but um, you know, this sounds structural to me as you're talking. I think there is something structural about it. New Zealand is not entirely alone with this. Um, from the 1970s, from 1970s Germany, actually, there is a theory. It's called the spiral of silence. I'm not sure whether you've come across that. No, but I, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, it was developed by a German pollster. Um, her name was Elisabeth Nöller-Neumann. She was the grand old lady of German um, polling, and, and um, she had her own polling institute. And um, she encountered a phenomenon in the early 70s that 
fewer people actually said they would vote for center-right, right-wing parties than actual election results than demonstrated. And she wondered why that was so. Her answer, and she published a book about that, was that there is a spiral of silence where people think that there is a degree of you know, acceptable opinion, stuff that people would like to hear. And at the time, the prevailing media mindset was definitely left-wing or center-left. So people who actually didn't quite agree with where this government at the time was going held back and told the opinion um, pollsters something else because they didn't want to fall out with public opinion. And she then said, well, actually, what happens in such a situation? You take yourself back. You think you're falling out with mainstream opinions. So actually, you censor yourself and you don't actually say what you really think. But if that happens systematically, then, of course, other people will think, well, there are fewer and fewer people actually speaking on behalf of maybe center-right positions, and therefore the majority must be even stronger on the center-left, not realizing that it's just because some people don't say what they think. And so the whole thing spirals further, and in the next round, it actually looks as if there are hardly any other people disagreeing with a predominant view of the time. And so over time, some positions basically die out in public debates because people think it's just unpopular to say that what you really think. That was Nolan Neumann, that was the 1970s, that was Germany, a much larger country. Now imagine how it is in a much smaller country like New Zealand, where we already have perhaps a higher degree of social control because of our small size. You don't want to fall out with your neighbors. And if you then take yourself back and don't actually disagree with things that are currently you know, mainstream and uh, kind of common zeitgeist, if you like. The thing, uh, the, the current thing. thing. Yeah, then, yep. then you can imagine that um, over time, it appears as if there is only one opinion in the country it's just that um, the people disagreeing no longer speak. Yeah, and uh, uh, maybe we've just seen that recently in the polls because it was sort of counterintuitive um, to many, I know, um, and myself included, that uh, the National Party hasn't done so well in polling, it seems, in, in recent polls, given that you know that they could really tool up on arguments to uh, argue against the government and to put themselves forward as, you know, maybe the government to take New Zealand forward, yet they've slumped. They had yes. a great opportunity. They've slumped. Is that is that kind of an effect of what you're talking about, do you think? I actually think it has a lot to do with um, very good political management on part of the government. I mean, you can say about their policies, whatever you like, but you can't really fault them for their political management. The transition from one prime minister to the next was done beautifully. Uh, and it worked. And positioning-wise, it has worked miracles for Labour. So I think that's why the opinion polls have turned. But, but that um, only works, doesn't it, Oliver, if people kind of forget, you know, that the attention span and memory only lasts, you know, a real short time. And is that getting back to this uh, excessive politeness always? Um, because you saw that effect. I don't want to get too hooked up on the specific political item. But, you know, uh, suddenly... You know, Jacinda, who was a star, she went and was forgotten pretty quick. You know, it was mm -hmm. like, you know, we'll take that one out. They put the the new guy in, Christopher Hipkins, um, and, you know, we can look and see what he's been involved in. But because he looks like a kind of a nice guy and and says uh, things that Jacinda uh, doesn't say, you know, oh, isn't he a nice man all of a sudden? There's no... There's no thinking of of what it means. It's it's all kind of superficial. It's, yeah, but let's let's face it. For many voters, that's exactly the exactly the level of information that they have. They go by personalities, and especially then if you have an opposition that probably doesn't differentiate itself enough from the government. Well, if they are both kind of moving towards the center and a median voter, and they look comparable, well then. As a relatively uninformed voter, you might just as well go by personalities if you don't think that they differ that much anyway. And an unquestioning or a soft media, giving their, um, you know, the people that, that they like or whatever, a, a, an easy ride. Yes, and I think actually the media um, were probably more fascinated by the political dimension of all of this, the, the Beltway stuff, the transition, how that all worked. And if you look at it from that kind of perspective, as I say, it was impressively handled. Mm. Labour Party did practically everything right. By the way, not once, but twice. I mean, Jacinda Ardern benefited, of course, from Andrew Little seeing um, that he had, didn't have a chance to win that 2017 election. And now she has come to the same conclusion and um, 
handed it over to Chris Hipkins. So Labour handles these transitions relatively well. Yeah, but that seems to be the item of interest. It, it, it's not. It, it's not the the core of of the issues. It's it's just you know it's the. Now, yeah, it's the co uh, cosmetic stuff. It's that is what the media is interested in because um it's a it's a blood sport politics sometimes and the media likes to cover that. Yeah. Um, we have too few journalists actually really going into the issues a bit more deeply and actually report on policy on outcomes rather than on personalities and politics. Okay, so with all that sort of uh, on the landscape, let's let's get into, you know, first of all, when when you mention reform, I mean things are always evolving and moving forward. <laughs> Sometimes at a snail's pace, but uh, I mean that seems to be the way things go. What what are you talking about specifically? Um, are there you know some core pillars of reform that really, uh, you know, urgently, super urgently need to take place? Um, you mentioned the public service. There does seem to be a sort of a handbrake effect in there. I don't know why. Um, some things are, are favoured, which don't seem very logical to a lot of people. Others, uh, sensible stuff just uh, seems to languish. So I don't know where you want to start. Well, let's start us. with the public service, if you like. Okay. Because I think actually the public service is absolutely crucial if we want to get any reforms implemented. It doesn't matter whether it's education, housing, planning, decentralization, health, whatever you want to take. If the public service is unable to implement the reforms, then you're stuck. Um, think about the public service as New Zealand's operating system. And think about the other policies like education reform or housing reform as the apps you want to install. Well, if you try to install an Android app on iOS, computer will say no. And um, computer says no. Computer says no. So think of it that way. We need to have an operating system, i.e., public service, that is able to accept new apps being installed and doesn't block them out with a big firewall. It seems to me that in the New Zealand public service, we have a system that basically perpetuates itself, protects itself, and reacts um, with a lot of T cells to foreign ideas getting into its system. So it tries to just kill them and try to keep things the way they always were. And in particular, coming back to education, it's been going in the wrong direction for decades. And think about it this way. We've had many different governments over the decades. We had labor-led governments. We had national-led governments. We had all sorts of different ministers in charge. But the direction of travel and education hasn't ever changed. We've been pursuing the same kind of student-centered policies, as constructivist, postmodernist nonsense. And it didn't really matter who was in charge. And if you ask yourself why that is, I think it is because these policies do not come from elected politicians. They come from the bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy, by the way, is a massive force because it has grown also a lot over the last few years. So when I arrived in 2012, people complained, oh, this education ministry has become so big. And we were talking about 3,000 people at the time up from, by the way, 599 in the year 2000. Well, today we are above 4,200. So this ministry is a giant, a colossus, really towering over the whole education system. We have more public servants now than we have schools. And um, it That's is incredible. Very, yes, <laughs> it is incredible. There's one public servant for every school or more. More, more, more than yeah. that. So they're all taken care of. Um, you cannot easily turn this around anymore. They are so steeped in their ways. And I just want to give you one example, which, which I found absolutely stunning, something we researched last year. You may have heard of modern learning environments. Mm -hmm. You know, these supersized classrooms. 600, I've heard, up to 600 some. Up to 600. Well, I mean, the, the ones we've come across were typically more around 100. But anyway, they are giant. Okay. Yep. And then you've got a few teachers roaming around and probably students sitting somewhere on beanbags teaching themselves, or at least that's a theory. Well, we tried to figure out actually where this policy came from. And we asked the ministry under the Official Information Act, and the response we got was quite telling. They had pretty much no evidence to start with. Um, for this policy. So it was based on a TED talk and an infographic, both oh, by architects. You're kidding me. No, no, no. Uh, that was the answer we got from the ministry. It didn't, from what we can see, start with the minister. It came from really, really deep inside the bureaucracy. 
And then they pursued this policy. And when we asked them, actually, so how much did you spend? They said, well, we don't hold a record on that. Then we asked, so how many of these classrooms did you build? Well, we don't hold a record on that either. Then we asked, did you ever evaluate the policies? And they said, of course not. So we found that this policy actually started under national government, was continued under Labour, and was then finally in Parliament killed by Chris Hipkins as education minister when ACT asked him a question about it. But this is a typical kind of story, how our education policies develop in, inside the ministry. Yeah, I'm just trying to imagine them, you know, you know, these people getting together and sort of deciding to do this on no evidence, um, a TED talk. And an ideology. And, and ideolo an ideology. But to, to, to have it, people running with it like that, uh, it's is, scary. It some sort of, is it a group thing? Yes. Oh, must, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it is absolutely scary. And this is how our education ministry operates. Another example, I mean, we've had evidence now for decades, really, of falling standards in New Zealand education. So you might naively think, well, at some stage, the ministry would wake up and do things differently. But as the examples we found show, um, they are rather trying to downplay um, the extent of the problem. One example here, um, in 2014, Tertiary Education Commission tried to figure out how numerate and literate are our school leavers. So they tested literacy and numeracy for NCEE level two graduates, so people who spent 12 years at school. And they found at the time that 40 and 42% respectively of these school leavers were functionally illiterate or numerate, meaning they couldn't read a manual, they couldn't do simple calculations, they couldn't figure out how much the supermarket shopping would cost, that kind of stuff. We're not talking about stuff that actually would enable them to study at a university, we're talking really about the basics. So 40 and 42% respectively, unable to read, write, calculate. Now, that was 2014. What should have happened is, of course, the ministry should have had all alarm bells ringing and urgently reform the system. Didn't happen. What happened instead was um, it took eight years until the ministry figured, actually, there must be a problem somewhere because all of these students and all of these graduates, of course, have the required number of literacy and numeracy credits. Otherwise, they wouldn't get a certificate in the end. So how can that be? <laughs> well, they figured out after eight years that it's because they are never properly tested. We never test whether students, graduates actually are able to read, write and do maths. Instead, what we do is they get their credits in passing. So if you take any courses that require some kind of reading or writing where books are involved, you get a literacy credit along the way. And if you take courses where some numbers feature, well, you get a numeracy credit, but nobody's ever tested it properly. And so in the end, we had um, a whole generation really of students failing at the basics. And last year, then after eight years, after eight years, after this initial tertiary education commission study, the ministry said, okay, maybe we should test our graduates then specifically for literacy and numeracy. So they did reading, writing, and maths tests and found that if the requirement is that you have to pass all three of them, and that's what the ministry initially wanted to do, only about a third of a year would still get a leaving certificate. Well, yeah. and after they found out that, they tried to delay the introduction of that test. Um, we only found it on the Official Information Act. And then the latest, just about a couple of weeks ago, we found out that the ministry talked to NZQA asking whether they couldn't make the test a bit easier. So, so this is how we do education policy in this country. They don't want to be outed. That's no. what that tells me. They know, they know, but they can't, they can't take the accountability. They can't face it. So they'll, no. be, they'll bend light. Yes. To, to avoid that. That's kind of corruption in my book. Yes. And it leads us back to the question of reformability. So if okay. you want to turn this system around, what are you going to do? You have this massive. Buy them industry. all. Yeah. Well, well, that, yeah, that's a very private sector attitude. Um, well, it, it kind of works. Yeah, it kind of works. It doesn't work like this in the public sector, at least not under our current setup. At the moment, you couldn't even fire the head of the department because um, these department top public servants are not even chosen by the ministers. They are chosen by the Public Service Commission. So it is very difficult to actually remove the leadership, install new people and say, actually, what you've been doing for the last 20, 30 years is wrong. We're going in a different direction. And here is a new leadership team. That's not how it works. So you just have to hope that at some stage, the Public Service Commission will appoint a new chief executive for the ministry who is sympathetic to the minister's ideas. And then hopefully at some stage, 
turns things around. Well, what are the chances of that, Oliver? Come well, on. exactly. And so I think we need to really talk about public service appointments. We need to probably restructure the way we do this and put ministers in charge of their ministries. I mean, what a radical idea. I mean, most countries have it that way. It's just in New Zealand that we leave it to the public service to basically control the apparatus of the ministry. And the ministers are not even physically in the ministry. The ministers, as we all know, sit in a beehive. What's the point of having ministers if they can't, if they're ineffective, if they're, you know, powerless in this? Because it is the public's impression that that's where the buck stops. And probably exactly. when there's bad news, it is where the buck, buck stops. Um, it must be soul destroying for someone, presumably, uh, who end up, ends up in that role as a minister of education. There's got to be some interest in education to want to do that. And then you you suddenly realize, if you didn't know before, that you're just a place filler. Yes, I think it will be frustrating for ministers who are more reform-minded. And you just have to talk to David Seymour, his experience when he was undersecretary for education in the key government. And he tried to push through more charter schools and the ministry tried to block him at every step of the way to the point that the charter schools were not that firmly established that when we had a change of government in 2017, they were all gone within a few months. Well, that was the deal, I suppose, back to the um, education um, unions, wouldn't it be? Because of the association there, that would have been part of the deal, right? Correct. Um, so I think the ministry has a problem um, with union influence. It has a problem, of course, with the um, established structure, which is now so big. There is the New Zealand Council for Education Research, and parts of that probably don't help either. And then, of course, we've got um, the superstructure on top of all of that, which is the existing curriculum, the assessment system. So you can't get any change done. So what I think we need to do in mm. order to regain the reformability, we have to make changes to the way we run the public service. We, I, I believe we have to put ministries under the minister's control, as it is in most other countries. If it was your job, your brief, how would you go about that, given that, I mean, it could blow up in your face, couldn't it? Um, and the power, don't underestimate the power there. How do you go about effecting that sort of reform, that sort of change? How would you do it? Well, um, there was one country in the last decade that actually did education reform properly, and that was England. Um, I say England, not the UK, because in England, uh, in the UK, education matters are devolved. But in England, education reforms actually happened. They happened under Michael Gove when he was education minister. Uh, they had a schools minister called Nick Gebb. And then, of course, there was a political advisor by the name of Dominic Cummings. Dominic Cummings, a bit of an acquired taste in Westminster, I would say. Mm. Um, quite a forceful person, a very Machiavellian person, someone who really wants to get stuff done with all sorts of means. You, you, you need that, right? You need that. You need that. If you yeah. take on a bureaucracy like an education ministry, um, you need all of that. And so the two politicians, uh, Michael Gove and Nick Gebb, together with their advisor, Dominic Cummings, really pushed through. So they ensured that England got a proper curriculum, that England actually got proper testing of students again. They had their backing, the backing of the Prime Minister, David Cameron, at least for the first four years, until Cameron actually got cold feet and fired Michael Gove, because it was just a bit too extreme what he did. And um, Cameron probably worried um, that the fallout with the unions would be even worse. Uh, but in the four years in which these three really single-mindedly reformed the English education system, they succeeded. And the country was turned around, and the PISA results are now going up. And English students learn a lot more than they used to. So it's possible, but you have to really take all of these forces on. So if you put me in charge of this, well, first of all, I probably would only do it if I had a supportive prime minister for that, because otherwise you're, you're lost from day one. I would only do it if I was actually in charge of the ministry, if I had executive competence to actually do what I want. And um, then I would go about it and actually exchange the leadership team and tell the rest of the ministry that if you want to stay here, then you better follow that new direction. What about um, out there in the field, uh, you know, the, the the education, the teaching workforce, they've also bought into this presumably, or in fact, that's a good question. And I don't know how much consultation you've had at, at the sort of the, the, the blackboard end of it, but uh, what is your sense of, of the, you know, the workforce, the teaching workforce, they see stuff in real time in the classroom 
they must uh, understand this. Do you think that they would be um, cooperative in that, or would you face a tsunami of opposition there as well? I think a large chunk of them would be cooperative because you just have to explain what you're doing. Well, first of all, I have a great degree of sympathy for our teachers because they're doing a really tough job. They're dealing with difficult communities, with difficult students. They're dealing with an education system that is fundamentally broken. They have a very limited career structure. So you can be as good as you like as a teacher, but after eight years, you have reached the end of your professional life and that's it. There is no great career structure for ambitious teachers. And they're not well paid either. I mean, in the 1970s, we paid teachers roughly what MPs got, and now MPs are basically twice the salary of our teachers. So by all accounts, teachers didn't get a good deal. The other thing that makes teachers' lives really hard, I believe, is actually this lack of a curriculum. So in other countries, we have really detailed curricula prescribing exactly what needs to be taught. And that actually makes the teacher's job easier. In New Zealand, we rely on the teacher to fill in the gaps because the curriculum doesn't actually tell you anything. The whole curriculum for all of New Zealand, for all of our school years and for all of our subjects is little more than 40 pages. So it's basically vacuous. It's empty. And so you cannot expect teachers to fill in the gaps and actually make up for all of that. So actually, if we had a proper curriculum, the teacher's jobs would be easier. And on top of that, there's another thing in which we have failed our teachers. We have not actually taught them how to teach. And again, that's surprising because you would think, well, that's all they learn yeah. when they go to university. But unfortunately, there are very few places in New Zealand actually teaching our aspiring teachers the methods of learning and the neuroscience of learning. Because over the last 20, 30 years, we've had so many new um, research results on how the brain actually works, on how the brain memorizes things, and how the brain develops in children. If we taught our teachers how that works, they would actually be able to find methods that work a lot better and then make their lives easier. So I think we have failed our teachers. If you were an education minister explaining all of this to our teaching workforce, I think you would have them on board. You would tell them, hey, first of all, we want a better career structure for you. You should be better qualified, but you should also be better paid. Secondly, we're going to give you a curriculum that makes your job easier because you can actually teach according to the curriculum. You don't have to fill in the gaps. And then thirdly, we also teach you how to convey knowledge to your students. We actually give you access to the latest advances in neuroscience to make your lives, your jobs easier and more effective. And then I want to see the teacher who says, oh, that's a bad deal. I don't want that. Well, actually, if that's your attitude as a teacher, you probably shouldn't be a teacher. Hmm. Um, the uh, ability for teaching as a career to get, you know, beyond that sort of threshold that you mentioned, uh, that would require what um, paying better performing teachers. Absolutely. Kind of what they're worth. But, you know, it, it seems to me that over the time that that, that kind of um, regime's been talked about, you know, it's it's been pushed down. It's It's like, this argument is that well no we're all we're all in this together and we we don't want this competitive uh thing between teachers which is a natural human behavior form actually um and everyone's pulled back into the pot you know no one can sort of get out or escape um it, it, that that's that, that's I, I, can you see yeah, I teachers see turning down pay rises like that you know uh, re rewarded for their skill I, yeah, but the I, thing is, I, actually, it doesn't work like this in any other walk of life. If you want to have a career as a university teacher, for example, well, you start off as a lecturer, and then you become a senior lecturer, then you become an associate professor, and then you become a professor. So <laughs> there's a career structure that we have there. We have career structures for um, policemen, for firemen. It's, it's always there. So, you so how does this happen? Do you, you got any idea how this, this kind of mentality has only seem to have finished up in, in this area? Well, I think on that one, you probably have to thank the unions because for years they've been telling us that there are no bad teachers in New Zealand and therefore they should all be paid the same. And I personally find that surprising because it would be the only profession that I know of where everybody's exactly the same. Yeah. It's nonsense. So anyway, um, we have a nice saying in Germany for these kinds of matters. And it is, if you want to drain a pond, you don't ask the frogs for permission. <laughs> so you got to get in there 
and go hard. And it's yes, it's, it's awkward, and you're going to have some battles, and um, people will um, um, go down kicking and screaming probably. But in the end, you got to do it. Can you see any? I mean, it might be you who's the kind of personality equipped for that. But can you? I can't see anyone doing that anytime soon. Can you? I'm I'm not sure whether it's me. Um, first of all, they would have to listen to someone with a German accent, and some people don't like. Well, I mean, that. someone with your your understanding of this, and 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 maybe you're prepared to you know, you know, to go all the way. Someone with yeah. that mentality. It needs someone with that mentality. It should be someone like a Michael Gove or a Nick Gibb or a Dominic Cummings. Uh, we have people who understand the problems and the flaws in our education system, and when. It's not for lack of analysis. We have done the analysis. We have actually demonstrated where the system is going wrong. It needs the political will to turn it around. And it will take someone who is willing to take all of these battles. But it's so important because our children's future really depends on it. And we're paying for it, man. Yes, we're paying and, and we about $100,000 per student. So say again. We're paying more than $100,000 per student over their school careers. So if you're paying $100,000 per student, it should be unacceptable that they leave the school illiterate. I mean, that's the basics. The basics need to be there. And I think that kind of failure should absolutely be unacceptable in a country like New Zealand. Otherwise, you want your money back, maybe. And and then there's all this, and we'll get on to maybe some other things, but the, um, there's all this other stuff that you hear. I mean, again, my kids went through school in a kind of different era. Um uh, it seems now I can see that, but you know, stuff's being taught that <laughs> it spins your head, honestly. Um, you know, what people want to teach their kids in their own home, I guess, is up to them. But it, it, it there seems to have been a yeah, a takeover of our kids by this uh industrial educational complex. I don't know what you want to call it. Um, yeah, when are we going to start seeing, and it might be happening already, parents actually start to say, sod this. I'm not in this anymore. I'm I'm taking my kids out. And could that be something that really forces a forcing function? Yeah, I think we can see that already. Um, there is a huge demand for private schools, for example, because the private schools are outside that system. They don't have to teach according to NCA. They can use the International Baccalaureate or Cambridge Certificate. So we see that parents, at least the parents who can afford it, are voting with their feet. But that's not an option for everybody. Not everybody can afford the massive fees for private schools. And actually, there are not enough private schools anyway. So for the majority of families, the state is the monopoly provider of education. And we have to reform the system so that it works for the people who have absolutely no other choice. And how long do you think, let's say, you know, green lights everywhere. How long would it take to, to turn the super tanker around? And how long have we got before we sort of cross a, cross a threshold where the educate the, the kids being educated today, going through the system today, um, are going to, um, through their lack of education, those basic skills you mentioned, be a real downside to the operating of a country? Because we need smart people with a certain amount of, of learning on board to be able just to, to maintain the status of our society the point that we've we've got to already yeah um i think we should have started that yesterday because the effects are already visible we have absolutely no time to lose the reforms really need to start now and you asked how long that would take to turn around i think it would probably take one or two parliamentary terms to get it all done but then you could actually see results quite quickly i mean that was the experience of england they had these reforms from 2010 onwards and the PISA results actually started tracking up from maybe six, seven years later. In the conversations that you have in the halls of power, whoever you mix with, um, and given your role and uh, the New Zealand Initiative, I'm sure people, you know, they, they're listening. And the conversations you have, what is your sense of of willingness? Is there a, is there a um, an effort sort of ramping up behind the scenes that you know, will suddenly spring out at some point. Tell us about how you read that. Well, I cannot at the moment sense too much of that in the current government. I sense a bit of that in the major opposition parties. And I sense a lot of that actually in the business community. I mean, we are a 
public policy think tank. We are business funded. And I talk to our members and that's basically the business leaders, so CEOs and chairs of New Zealand's largest companies all the time. If there's one issue that our members are really passionate about, it is not stuff that actually makes their company work better tomorrow, improves their bottom line. That's not what our members really want from us. Hmm. The one topic that they bring up again and again is how do we educate this country better? We are failing a whole generation of students. We're dumbing down a generation of students and our business leaders are really concerned not because of their companies, but because of the future of this country. And there's a, always a call for, you know, uh, immigrants to fill roles. I was just thinking as you're talking there, is that a sign? Is that a sign that we're starting to see the effect of this? Because actually it, there are in numbers, you know, people around, but they're just not equipped. They can't do it because they don't know enough. They haven't learned enough. Is that an effect we're seeing? Yes, um, and in some areas even more than others. Think of um, the medical professions, our doctors, our nurses, our midwives. We don't train enough of these people, and actually the few that we train are then likely to leave the country because working conditions are better elsewhere. We have two medical schools in this country, and the doctors they produce, well, even they would not help us improve the situation. They are barely maintaining the status quo. And of our doctors, of course, we lose quite a few to Australia and other countries as well. So no, um, at the moment, we're trying to plug the gaps in our markets um, and we're trying to import talent from overseas. But actually, we're aspiring to be a first world country and we shouldn't be doing that. We should be training our own. We've talked a lot about education already um, in the time that we've got left. What are some of the other things that are on your mind reform-wise? Um, I, I mean, we've, we've got to maintain our competitive place in the world we've got to create products we've got to sell stuff and uh you know new, new, the number eight wire thing has kind of helped us you know we were plucky and 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 we would try manufacturing and there was a time that i can remember when even the cars were assembled here um back in the day which i, I imagine kept some sort of skill level going um uh, maybe that's not a great example but uh one of the other things holding us back from being you know, um, the rock star economy. Remember mm -hmm. that one? Yeah, yeah, I do remember that one. That was around 2014, 15 or so. Well, um, I'm not sure that car manufacturing would be a great idea for New Zealand. I mean, even Australia. No, I wasn't suggesting that, but at, at know. least, you know, people in Australia like, failed in the long yeah, run. No, they I could never that, yeah. um, Well, the one thing actually that's close to my heart that we've been campaigning on forever is decentralization localism. You probably heard me talk about this over the years because I keep going back to that because I think it's such an important issue for us again. Yeah, New Zealand is one of the most centralized countries in the world. Of every government dollar, 91 cents are handled by Wellington. Wow. Only okay. 9, per, 9, 9 cent, 9% 9 of government spending actually handled at the sub-central level, i.e. in communities, councils. The OECD average actually is a bit more like two thirds at the national level and a third locally or at states or London or cantons or whatever they're called. Actually, in some countries like Germany, uh, for example, the whole thing is so devolved. The whole federal German public service is about half the size of the New Zealand public service. So we've got 60,000 people employed by Wellington and only 30,000 people by Berlin. Amazing. It is amazing. Um, and the rest is um, devolved. It happens in the States around Germany. So what I'm saying here is New Zealand is incredibly centralized. And that is a problem because centralized countries are not that good at actually listening to communities I mean, by default. So what we should be doing is actually we should devolve a lot more of government to the people where it is supposed to help. And we should also make sure that communities engaged in public policy matters and planning and infrastructure development have much better funding than they currently do. So I just want to give you one example, and that's a, I think probably the best example to explain why this degree of centralization is a problem for New Zealand. Think about it this way. You are the Auckland mayor, and um, the government tells you, hey, we've got a housing crisis in Auckland. You should build 100,000 new homes, something like that, over the next decade. So. What would be the response? Well, the response would be, well, actually, why should I do that? Because I have to deal with the NIMBYs. I have to deal with the neighbors who don't like development in the neighborhood. 
Nimbys we've all heard, there are bananas as well. That's built absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. So you have to deal with them too. Then you have to pay for the infrastructure. You have to pay for the roads. You have to pay for pipes. You have to pay for parks and libraries and everything that comes with the development. And that's all very expensive. Okay. And when the development happens, who gets the GST? Who gets the corporate taxes? Who gets the income taxes from the new residents? Well, Wellington. So we are asking places like Auckland to please pay for development, make it all happen, have all the political troubles associated with it, but all the upsides from the development end up in Wellington. So if you really pit two tiers of governments against each other like that, well, what do you expect you're going to get? You get constant trouble between the two tiers where Wellington thinks, oh, the country doesn't build enough and these local councils are just stupid and we have to instruct them. We have to tell them what to do and where councils and say, well, Wellington interferes with us all the time. They won't pay for it and they leave us with the bill and nothing gets done. In my system, which I would like to see implemented in New Zealand, we would do things differently. When there is local development, yes, councils will have to pay for the infrastructure because that's their job, but they would also retain some of the tax uptake, some of the tax revenue. So give councils a slice of the GST from your development or let them charge a local income tax as they do in Switzerland. And suddenly the calculation for local government looks completely different. And in Switzerland, I can tell you from experience, when it comes to development, the councils and the cantons like it because with every bit of development, they gain taxpayers, they gain tax mm. revenue. And suddenly this is a good news story when development happens. And in New Zealand, it seems to be when development happens, you've got all the naysayers on the council saying, oh, it was too expensive and why do we have to do with this? If we turn this around, if we give councils a much better way to fund themselves, to finance themselves, we would get a completely different dynamic. We would have solved our housing problem overnight and not just a housing problem. Imagine what councils would do if they also kept some of the business taxes. They would be a lot more proactive. They wouldn't actually block the opening of new supermarkets or new factories. I mean, remember Sleepyhead last year? We had yeah. a discussion on Sleepyhead opening a new factory in the Waikato somewhere. And the council there actually said, oh, really, do we need to have this? And they also want to build homes for their workers. And That's right. can't, can't they just go somewhere else? And I was listening to that a bit and I thought, you must be mad. I mean, this country must be mad. If there is a new factory creating jobs, there is a new factory creating homes for their workers, any other country would actually say, this is wonderful. This is economic development. That's what we want. In New Zealand, when it happens, the council says, actually, no, can you please make this happen somewhere else because it's costly? I think we've got this exactly the wrong way around. So after we fix the public service, after we fix education, <laughs> this is the other thing I would like to fix. Well, I was just thinking, um, as you're explaining that uh, the way that, that amount of money or the percentage that goes to central control, I mean, that's what funds the public, the bloated public service, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um <laughs> And I mean, we always need some public service, of yeah, course. Yeah, but when it's bigger than Germany. Yes, uh, it, it is definitely uh, bigger than Germany. And it's grown massively. I mean, it was about 42,000 They're hungry for people. money. They're, they're, they're like yeah. druggies who need their, their drugs, the, the money. But if at all... least they developed, if at least they made the country grow, if at least they developed, de delivered a well, that's right. good education system, I, I might be willing to forgive them for all of that. But they don't because the structure doesn't work. And of course, in the situation that you just um, described there, the local politicians have to go back to, well, not a huge pool of voters because the turnout is usually pretty low and explain why their rates have to go up. Exactly. Because they have to accommodate this new suburb or this new yep. new development. And also, I remember, I, I might just be, you know, sort of reminiscing, looking through the, you know, the, the tinted glasses, but um, those uh, organizations, councils, they seem to have their own engineering capability back in the day. They had earth moving gear. They had front end loaders. Uh, they had um, the equipment to create, you know, drains, lay drains uh, that uh, that they owned and could operate. And surely that's a more efficient way at scale when you've got that kind of in-house and paying full retail all, all, the, t all the time. Or I'm or even worse, I'm having to wait for some central government agency to help you out because you are not equipped for it yourself. Yeah. It used to be, though, we were. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember. And, the good old actually, days. In the good old days and actually in the 19th century as well. I mean, we looked at the history of local government in New Zealand. New Zealand started off relatively decentralized. I mean, by default, by nature, because 
back in the 19th century, um, transport links were non-existent before mm. Vogel built the railways and there were hardly any roads and certainly no motor vehicles. So it was shipping basically between the major cities in the country and that took forever. So by necessity, our cities, when they started off, actually, they were pretty much self-governing. Uh, there was not much of a central government anywhere. It was only later, basically, from the turn of the 19th to 20th century, that we actually saw this massive degree of centralization, which left us one of the most centralized countries on earth. But we didn't always work like that. So any political party, because it's election year, right, that's uh, promoting policies for growth, um, what should people measure those policies and announcement off against in light of what you've just been talking about? Well, first of all, discount any policy that is just a handout. If it's just government promising to spend more on stuff, handing out a bit more for early childhood education or initiatives like that, well, forget about this. This doesn't create any growth. What we really want to see are some structural changes, structural changes in the way we operate our education system, structural changes in which we operate the public service, structural changes which will empower local communities and actually incentivize growth at the local level. These are the kinds of policies I would like to see. And I would actually like to see properly costed policies. I would like to see everything with the proper cost-benefit cost analysis. And I would actually like to see policies designed by economists. Would be nice. I'm an economist. I always suffer when I see stuff that simply doesn't make any economic sense whatsoever. I mean, What's the whole point of having highly qualified economists in the country when you don't ask them? That's a very good point. Here's a, here's a personal question. Um, at what point are you out of here, man? How, ba how bad does it have to, to get for someone? Because, you know, people are leaving the country. You know? Yeah, but that's, that's the wrong approach. Uh, we have a chance here to turn this into a really good country, into a prosperous country for everybody. The chances are there. We just have to take them. So don't give up, just do it. And actually take a bit more of an interest in politics and policy and uh, do your research and then vote for parties that actually want to do the right thing. Doing your own research, though, Oliver, these days is risky to, to say that you're doing your own research on well, something. That's another no, thing that people don't like to, trans to telegraph too much. It's that spiral thing that you were talking about. Well, yeah. inform yourself. I mean, there are many good sources of information in New Zealand where you can actually figure out what's going on. I mean, starting perhaps with the initiative publications, we have done research on practically everything under the sun. They're all online, right? They're all online. We have a newsletter that you can subscribe to. And we've got some really good ideas, I think, for the major policy challenges facing the country. So there's a high likelihood that over the past 11 years, for any problem you're thinking about, we would have had a publication. So start there. Um, and then do policies that make sense. We haven't even talked about energy policy or climate well, change policy. Well, we've got a few more minutes. If you want to talk about uh, energy, uh, shoot. Well, um, good things first. We have an emissions trading scheme. So actually, when you look at the ways in which countries are trying to curb carbon emissions, and we have a legal obligation to do so under the international treaties that we have signed, well, if you want to cut carbon emissions, then do it efficiently. And we've got an emissions trading scheme, which covers 98% of the New Zealand economy and 50% of our emissions. The difference in each case is agriculture, which is not in the system. But now that we have an efficient ETS, we should let it work. Unfortunately, we have too much interference with the system where politicians are trying to do all sorts of policies that are simply not compatible with it. To explain why probably takes a bit more than two or three minutes. But the basic is this. We have legislated the total amount of carbon that we are going to emit. So the total amount is predetermined by what we have decided. The emissions trading scheme is then meant to figure out who is emitting what and how much. But the total amount doesn't change. So if a government, after they have done all of that, says, okay, now we're going to subsidize EVs. Now we're going to require our utilities to only have renewable electricity or we're going to tax or regulate or whatever else we're going to do, none of this will work because we are starting from a position where the total amount of emissions at the end of the year is predetermined. So all that these other policies do is they distort the market price of carbon. And so we are in the, the absurd situation now where we have the world's best designed emissions trading scheme and where our politicians are constantly introducing new policies that only cost money without cutting a single gram of carbon. And that is 
frankly insane. I mean, you can stand on climate change wherever you like. You can say, well, we're going out too fast, or you might not believe in it at all. But anyway, we've got a system now. So why don't we just let this work? Nobody, no matter where they stand on climate change, can agree with policies that are incompatible with the other policies where we only pay without any gain. That doesn't make any sense. That is just insanity. Yeah. Um, why the insanity? Uh, have you figured that one out yet? I yeah, mean, the, insan the insanity is easy to understand. Um, politicians want to have nice pictures. Oh, so right. if you are a government minister and you announce a new scheme that will pay people to switch off their old coal boilers and install something else, or you replace some um, tankers on the, on the street with um, electric tankers, that kind of stuff, you can always get nice picture opportunities. It looks good. You're doing something for the environment. It sounds grand. What people don't see is actually that behind all of these policies, there is an exactly zero reduction in carbon emissions, but it comes at a massive price tag. It's an expensive photo op. Yes. That's for sure. Yes, but that's basically why we have these policies, because otherwise there's absolutely no reason to have them. Yeah, more economists in control than all of those. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, um, uh, I like the idea. Yeah, yeah, okay. So that's the emissions trading um, scheme or system regime. I think we understand that. And I think you made a reference earlier on to um, Reserve Bank. And, uh, you know, the, the sort of small pull uh, around that. So is that another piece of the puzzle that you can quickly tell us about? Yes, um, the Reserve Bank uh, fits into the puzzle because it is part of our public service that doesn't actually perform well anymore. Uh, we talked at length about the education ministry. We could have talked about the treasury. Uh, we could have probably also talked about some other ministries, but the Reserve Bank is certainly one of these institutions that currently doesn't deliver as it should. And it's plain to see for everybody because we have inflation that is now well above the target where it should be. The Reserve Bank has a target for inflation between 1% and 3%, midpoint of 2 and we're currently way above 7 Actually, we would probably be close to 8 had it not been for the government's fuel rebate, the discount on our fuel excise. So um, we've got a problem in the Reserve Bank. And it's not just that we have inflation. I mean, other countries have inflation too. Um, what I'm saying is actually we shouldn't need to have inflation here because we've got a floating exchange rate. That floating exchange rate means that we can actually pick the inflation we would like. We're not dependent on other countries. The differential between us and other countries is actually then reflected in the exchange rate. The problem for the Reserve Bank is actually it doesn't perform as it should. It has lost focus on inflation. It could have actually kept its eyes on the ball. It didn't because it was distracted in my view. So Part of it is the government's fault. So the government actually said to the Reserve Bank, it's no longer just inflation that we expect from you or inflation fighting. We also want you to pay attention to other things. So most notably to employment. So we've got a dual mandate now, meaning the Reserve Bank should focus on what's happening in um, prices, but also in the labor market. The government also at some stage um, sent the Reserve Bank a letter of expectations that it should now pay attention to house prices. Well, remember that? Well, again, this is um, not really what reserve banks typically do. And on top of that, the reserve bank then picked its own battles. So it tried to engage itself in climate change policy. Again, nothing to do with conventional central banking. It's, it's none of their business. We've got a climate change commission and a ministry for the environment for that. We don't need the reserve bank to do it. And on top of all of that, um, it also engaged itself heavily in the Maori economy. Now you might say, that's laudable. It's nice that you're paying attention, but again, is it your job? Your job, your mandate is something else. So I would argue that the Reserve Bank got distracted. And then on top of that, the Reserve Bank also got a lot bigger, while at the same time, it lost a lot of talent. So in 2017, we had 280 full-time staff at the Reserve Bank. Currently, there are about 450. That's a massive increase over yeah. just this five seems to be the story across years. everything, by the way. Yes, that's true. And actually, it's not just um, the number of people that have increased. It's also leadership team has gone a lot bigger. Of Typically, course. the Reserve Bank used to be a governor, a deputy governor, and an assistant governor, really one of each. Now we have the governor, of course, a deputy governor, and I think eight assistant governors. But it gets even more absurd. We have an assistant governor with responsibility for economics who doesn't have an economics degree, for example. Not a, it gets, here it is again. Here it yeah, is again. 
Yeah. And it gets worse. By design, we have a monetary policy committee. And previously, it was the sole responsibility of the governor to set the official cash rate. Now we have a monetary policy committee doing that. But in order to be on the monetary policy committee, you're not allowed to actually understand the subject. If you have a qualification in macroeconomics or monetary policy, you are not allowed to be on the monetary policy committee because you're deemed to have a conflict of interest, believe it or not. As far as I know, this is the only central bank in the world in which if you're qualified, you cannot serve on the monetary policy committee. It is totally absurd. Sorry, sorry how does, what is the conflict? What is the actual I'm not very bright sometimes. Yeah, what is well, the actual conflict of interest there? Well, I, I can assure you, it took me a while to understand this myself because I thought it was so absurd. They think that if you have a research interest in monetary policy and you would really like to take that research interest and just let it play out in practice, so you want to see what happens when you set 20% cash rate or minus 5%, and that research interest that you might have in trying some extreme policies might in some way conflict you. That is, seems to be the reasoning behind that. That sounds so constructed. And how come that doesn't apply to climate experts? Oh, it is totally constructed. It is insane. You would want to have really well-qualified people on your monetary policy committee because this is hard work. This is technical work. You want the best people for the job. And then you have the best people and tell them because you have actually done your research, you can't serve on the Monetary Policy Committee. Because you might want to, like some mad scientist, want to impose your ideal that seems to be the idea. experiment on an entire nation and run so when it. So when I first heard about that, uh -huh. I thought, you're pulling my leg. This can't be right. But no, this is exactly how we're operating. So what I'm saying about the Reserve Bank is I think we've got a problem. <laughs> we've got a problem with the Reserve Bank that's actually gone into all sorts of areas for which it isn't responsible. Then the government gave it some more responsibilities that shouldn't be its responsibility. Then we actually inflated the staffing at the Reserve Bank without actually getting the qualities and the capabilities and qualifications in that we need. And then we specifically ruled out people with qualifications from serving on the Monetary Policy Committee. Frankly, all of this is just absurd. Yeah, but if you've got people who, who know the game on the team, they're going to call you out. Yes, uh, and so that is a problem protection, again. I mean, power it, protection, right? Yeah, yeah, and we talked about this um, before. The problem is it is such a small central banking community in New Zealand yeah. that um, people who used to work there, who used to have um, high offices in the central bank, typically after leaving the Reserve Bank, don't speak out anymore. You, you don't talk negatively about your past employer, and it's such a small community, and you don't want to go against your former colleagues. So unfortunately, we don't have that um, um, debate that we need. And in any case, um, what I've also observed over the years, I won't name names here. Uh, there are few journalists, really few journalists actually reporting on the Reserve Bank and its policies. These journalists need access to the Reserve Bank. They need background information. They need to have open channels for conversations with the leadership of the Reserve Bank. Imagine what that does. It means if you fall out, if you report critically, you get into trouble. You probably won't get the inside information and the interviews that you need. And we had some examples of that in the last few years where journalists took a more critical stance and then felt it quite publicly, actually, from the government that they were no longer that appreciated. And I think that's totally unhealthy. We need to have a much more robust debate. The Reserve Bank is not beyond criticism. And it has to actually face that criticism from journalists too and from the public. And unfortunately, the behavior I have seen from the Reserve Bank more recently over the last few years has not impressed me. Yeah, I think there was a story just to, even in the last few days um, surrounding Pharmac. And uh, um, uh, the story was that they um, had, you know, lists of journalists, hostile and favorable. And if you're on the hostile list, good luck. Yep, <laughs> it just... Uh it seems to be a common story actually happening in New Zealand. Now, um, we're talking Wednesday morning here um, as it's playing out on Reality Check Radio. And I think that um, you will be uh, out in public, as I understand it. So do you want to share that information um, with yes, us? Yes, I'll be speaking uh, tonight at an event in Walkworth at the Walkworth Town Hall. It's organized by Unify and Z, and you can easily find that if you Google it. And um, basically, we'll be 
two hours on stage talking about the way in which I would like to reform the country, pretty much in the way in which I have outlined it to you right now. Well, it's great. For those who can't make the, the live show, they've got this. And do people come up to you in the street, Oliver, and say, hey, I, I can't really say it, but actually I agree with everything you say. But but don't say, don't don't put my name to it. Is there any of that? <laughs> Not so much in the street, but behind closed doors. Well, yeah, behind closed doors. Okay. <laughs> you wouldn't want to make that too public. All right. Hey, thanks for giving us a bit of time. It's, it's I mean, there's so much to talk. I, I just, I mean, this is a huge um, project of work that needs to be done, isn't it? It's just, it's massive because it, yes. it seems to be across everything. And we've, we're so far up the road. We've got to back all the way out and, and go another direction. Whoa. And it is growing. And, and actually just to reflect, I mean, I've been doing this now for almost 11 years in this job. Yeah. When I started, um, we were relatively small. We only worked on maybe a, two or three policies at that time. But when you do this for such a long time and you build this library of knowledge and of research and you've seen it all and you've got members who keep you informed and you're building up an enormous catalog of ideas, of knowledge, of problem knowledge. And um, I find actually what I'm doing right now, I couldn't have done when I started. And I'm so heavily invested in this country. So when you ask me, at what stage do I want to leave? No, I'm invested here. Actually, we, we haven't done this in vain. I want to see this implemented. All right. Well, we've ranged over quite a few things, and I'm sure there's always more to talk about. Um, thanks for coming on uh, the program at Reality Check Radio. Uh, really interesting to get. Well, it's all based on research, right? I mean, you've done you've done the research. This is not just the opinion. You've, you've you've looked into this, so you know there, there's some heft to the information. So, Dr. Oliver Hartwich. Committed to New Zealand, still good on you. Yes. From the New Zealand Initiative, the Executive Director, thanks for uh, coming on Reality Check Radio and uh, giving us some time to explain all that. It was great. Thank you very much.